Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Kathy Guzetta, RN, PhD, HNC, FAAN, Director of Nursing Research Consultants in Washington, D.C. She has been mentoring nurses and physicians in conducting family presence research and developing family presence programs since the mid-90s, and will be talking with, with us today about family presence during CPR and invasive procedures, evidence versus emotion. Thank you for being here, Kathy. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Kathy, what is family presence, and what settings, um, where do we usually find it? Well, I think it's pretty much just what it sounds like. It's the attendance of a family member in a location that affords um, visible or visual or physical contact with the patient during CPR or invasive procedures. I think it's founded in the concept of patient-family-centered care. I think it's an element that operationalizes it. Um, But I should add that family presence is an option. Uh, It's not an expectation of the family. Um, and I think it needs to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. It's also interesting because not all families want to be there. Some of the literature suggests about 60% of them want to be there when given the option, and it can be as high as 97% of parents who want to be with their children. It's usually found in critical care and emergency departments because clearly that's where these kinds of events primarily occur. How did you get involved with the family presence movement? Well, as you mentioned, it started about 20 years ago for me. Um, I was working at a large academic medical center, and a trauma case manager, nurse, um, came to see me about an event that had happened a couple of days um, prior. And she described bringing the family in to the bedside during a resuscitation of a teenager who had sustained severe trauma. She said she had never done anything like that before. She said that there was talk that she was going to lose her job. Um, she was told by the chief of trauma that not until pigs fly would that ever happen again. And so I said, goodness, tell me more about that. Why did you do that? And she explained that the parents desperately needed to see their child following surgery. And as she walked the parents down to the ICU, she was turned away by the providers and said, it's not a good time. They closed the door and she said, it's not a good time to go in. And the parents were ferocious about getting in and uh, were insistent that they do so. She went into the room, advocated for the family, got permission to bring them in, and they came in. The child died during the resuscitation, and then she asked me a really, really big question, which kind of changed my path. She said, why do we ban all families from the bedside during CPR? And as a critical care nurse, I had a knee-jerk reaction. Well, (laughs) because we don't do that, it's not allowed. I certainly was trained that you don't bring families in under that kind of circumstance. But I was also a real proponent of patient-family-centered care, and I thought, what could be more patient-family-centered than facilitating the wholeness and the integrity of the family unit during an emergency like this? 
Well, it turned out that she didn't lose her job, um, and it started kind of a journey for, to collect the evidence about what is family presence. As we got into it, we found that there was virtually no research about it. And so we decided after some time to develop a study. We looked at the outcomes and the experiences of providers and family members. We got funded. We collected data over a year and a half, uh, finished the study, published several papers. But an interesting thing happened as a result of that study, and that is that facilitators began to accept the practice. It became the culture of the unit, and people weren't even questioning it anymore. And, of course, we presented our findings, and the practice continued. And I think that's how I got started. It led to many more studies in various adult and pediatric institutions, but that's how it started for me. What are the provider concerns about family presence? Why is this such an emotional issue? Well, I think if you've never thought about it before and if you've never done it before, and clearly there's many, many places that haven't, you know, your first reaction is it's not allowed. We don't do that. I think the biggest concern is that the family um, will be overwhelmed by the situation, lose emotional control, and interrupt care, disrupt resuscitation. And personally, I think in terms of an outcome, this is the gold standard because if we're bringing families in and resuscitation is being disrupted, then we shouldn't be doing it. But I think also there's concerns that the whole process, the the equipment, the personnel, the treatments being rendered will be too traumatic for the family and they'll suffer from anxiety and depression and PTSD afterwards. There's concerns that there's no time to take care of the family. Um, Our primary focus is on the patient. Also, bringing families in makes some providers uncomfortable, believing that they'll be more stressed and perhaps their skills will deteriorate. And there's also the concern that families may misunderstand the care and treatment that is being given, and it will increase the risk of litigation. So what is the evidence about family presence with regards to families, patients, providers, and the concerns that you just described? I think that there's been sufficient evidence, I think cumulative evidence over the years, since 20 years ago, to give some kind of solid principles of what families go through Uh, and what they're feeling. For the pediatric side, parents have a need to be there. They feel it's their right, their obligation, their duty as a good parent to be there, to protect and advocate for their child, to comfort and support the child, to see for themselves what's happening, what's going on. They have a need for accurate information about the child's condition. But I think it also removes doubt about the patient's situation and condition, uh, removes doubt about what was done. And over and over and over, we have heard and, and seen documented that it provides a visual acceptance and realization that everything possible was done for that patient. We've also heard over and over that it reduces their anxiety and fear because the waiting room um, is a monster. And the the kinds of nightmares you can conjure up while waiting to hear the outcome of what's going on can be worse than actually being in the room. And we also know from 
the research that's been done, it definitely provides some sense of closure and facilitation of grief should death occur. But perhaps one of the things that I think is is the most important outcome with regard to having families there is that from the studies that have been done, there has been no documentation that patient care has been interrupted, that the resuscitation has been interfered with. It's also interesting that when you, you know, when you ask families would they prefer to be in there or not and, and family presence being an option, it's not an expectation. You know, if you've never gone through that before, you really have no idea what you're getting yourself in for. And we've asked family members after the event, three months or six months later, knowing what you know now, um, if you had to do it all over again, would you do it again? And overwhelmingly, 95 to 100% say yes, they would do it again. In terms of patients, there's not a lot of evidence that's documented about that, and there's, there's a good reason for that. Many of the patients don't survive the resuscitation, and so <laughs> it's difficult to interview them. But from the little that has been documented from the voice of the patient, even if the patient wasn't conscious, they've told us that it's helped and comforted them to know that a family member was there. In some cases, it helped to reduce their anxiety and fear. Knowing that the family was there made them later feel safer and supported and less alone. But they also felt as patients that having family there provided a reminder to the providers of their personhood, that, you know, they were a real person with family, and that might have changed how the efforts of the resuscitation. In terms of providers, there are lots and lots and lots of studies about the attitudes of providers. We did a systematic review of 117 attitude surveys of family presence. And from that review, we found that less than half of providers in general favor family presence. It has been documented, however, that previous experience with family presence makes providers more supportive, and it's a significant predictor of whether you support family presence or not. We also know that nurses tend to support it more than attending physicians, that attending physicians tend to support it more than medical students um, or medical residents. Uh, There was an article that was just published that I need to tell you about in the New England Journal of Medicine um, this year, March of 2013, on family presence during CPR. It was done in the pre-hospital setting. It was a randomized study. Families were either present or not present. And what they found in terms of the families were that uh, PTSD, anxiety, and depression were all higher in the controls than in the group that actually witnessed family presence. The families did not alter the effectiveness or the duration of the CPR or the survival rate, and there were no lawsuits over nearly a two-year period. But again, it was a French study. It was a pre-hospital setting, and so the generalizability of those findings are questionable, I suppose. But I'm telling you about this study because the New England Journal then did a poll with their readers on whether their readers favored family presence. Uh, The results of that poll were published in June 2013. There were over 600 respondents from 62 countries, and overall, globally, 31% of the readers favored family presence. What we don't know, of course, is who were those readers, what were their job roles, and, and had they ever participated in family presence before. 
But clearly that 31% uh, globally does suggest that there, it remains an emotional issue with work to be done. But in terms of the studies that have actually looked at outcomes and attitudes from providers who have been through family presence in in the setting, um, providers have told us that it's a chance to educate the family and communicate with the family. It facilitated the family participation and caring with the patient, with, with the providers. And so there's a real case to be made that this is not simply a family-witnessed event, that families actually come in, they talk to the patient, they pray for the patient, they provide important medical history to the providers, uh, medication history, other important information. In some cases, they help restrain the patient. And so what it tells us that is that these families coming in actually play a role and feel like they play a role. So it's, it's very different from simply witnessing as a passive event. It also, having a family there, the providers have said, is a reminder of the patient's dignity, uh, a reminder for the need for privacy and pain management. Providers have told us it's encouraged more professional behavior at the bedside by having the family there. And they do believe that it's helped in the bereavement process should the, should the patient die. I think that one can't talk about the evidence without excluding, uh, without including what professional, our professional organizations have said about family presence. And in the past 20 years, there have been many, many organizations that have brought groups together within their organization to come to consensus statements and guidelines uh, on family presence. And folks uh, like the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, SCCM, the Emergency Nurses Association, the American College of Emergency Physicians, American Heart Association, American Academy of Pediatrics all support family presence during CPR whenever possible. In fact, SCCM published in Critical Care Medicine their guidelines for support of family in the patient-family-centered critical care. They had three recommendations for those guidelines, one that institutions develop a structured process to allow family presence, two, that the resuscitation team include a member designated and trained to support the family uh, who's not involved in the actual resuscitation, and third, that the resuscitation team and ICU staff all receive education and training about family presence. I think that point about having someone to support the family during CPR is an important one um, and probably helps address some of the concerns you raised about the family being too emotionally distraught and potentially disruptive by having someone assigned to work with them, support them, explain what's going on. That probably can improve the experience for both the family and the healthcare providers. I think all of these professional organizations and all of the major consensus statements agree that that having a family presence facilitator there to guide the family through the experience is probably the key. And this person needs training, and they know how to need to know how to deal with emotionally um, distraught family members. And they their their sole purpose then is to guide the family through the experience. That has actually been the pearls that we have used in all of the programs that we've set up to ensure that 
that there is a family presence facilitator. And that role can come from, you know, the nursing supervisor of the day. It can come from social workers or child life or chaplaincy or other resources. But to have that defined and designated is an important key to the success of a family presence program. Well, given that CPR is infrequent in children, and many of these events may occur at night, how do you ensure that a trained facilitator is present? Well, that's a, that's a very good question, and we have contingency plans that we've set up. Depending on who's on call as the supervisor, there are on-call people in terms of social work and child life. Frequently, though, uh, it's difficult if somebody's not on campus to be there to provide that support. But there are designated backup plans that are possible. Sometimes, you know, in critical care at night, patients are sleeping and things are slow, and sometimes another nurse from another room can come in and play that role. So we do educate the nurses within the unit to be able to assume that responsibility if necessary. A little while ago, you were talking quite a bit about the importance of family presence for parents of children. What's the difference between children and adults with regard to family presence? I think there are differences, but when you know when I look overall at the evidence, I think it's it's similar. I, you know there's no doubt the child is a minor. There's no doubt that the parents have that obligation and that feeling of duty and responsibility to be there. And I also think that in pediatrics, they have a longer history of providing patient-family-centered care. They have long ago given up separating parents from the child. And so I think, you know, when these incidents happen, usually the families are already there. Who do you consider the family that should be present in a resuscitation event? You know, I'm thinking some people have very large families, you know, and they have six brothers and sisters and a bunch of aunts and uncles and cousins who all want to be there, and you you could very quickly get into issues with crowd control, to say the least. So who should be there? Who are the family members who should be there? Well, I think sometimes that that's different for adults and pediatrics because with pediatrics, you, you've got the legal parents or the legal guardians of the child. And so we usually set up our family presence guidelines based on the legality of the district or the state with regards to who is who is responsible for that child. For adults, you know, it has been designated that the support person for an adult is whoever the patient says it is. And so that may or may not be a family member. It may or may not be someone who is a support person but not legally recognized, but it's who the the family says it is. In critical care, I think we also have the advantage many times, although not always, um, to kind of get to know the family situation more so than in an emergency department where somebody just comes in and you really don't know the social history. Frequently, we get to know the, the family history and the support people and the significant others. And I think sometimes that makes the judgment easier about who should be in there. In most cases of family presence guidelines, though, we limit the number of people in the room because clearly you can't have 15 people in there. But if if mom and dad were in there, for example, and grandma desperately needed to come in, then dad could go out and grandma could come in. So we've done that before, or we've 
you know, we've absolutely set it up in the policy that if you want to come in for a few minutes, that's fine. And if you feel the need to leave, you know, that is absolutely acceptable. And if you want to return at some point, we can do that too. Just go into the nuts and bolts of uh, how you implement this. When a patient arrests, do you have somebody assigned to ask the family member if they want to stay or they want to go or they want to come in or they want to go out? Or how do you, how do you make that happen? That is probably the key to success because I think if you are at an institution where there is some opposition or major opposition to family presence, it's likely because we haven't really thought of the details yet. And so um, I have been recommending that that we use a model of evidence-based practice in setting up a family presence um, program. It includes six steps in this model. And the first is to gather an interdisciplinary team. Family presence is an interdisciplinary intervention. There's no doubt about that. So we we really need to bring on board the advocates, the champions, if you will, from medicine, um, surgery, nursing, child life, social work, chaplaincy, respiratory, and bring a team together. The second step is to gather the evidence. And the first thing I always recommend is to go out there and find the policies that do exist at various hospitals because they've worked through various kinks and various issues. The Emergency Nurses Association also has published several family presence guidelines, policies, and procedures based on their recommended standards. The second thing, though, which I recommend and I think is another key to success of a program is to actually survey the providers that would be involved. And a survey about their attitudes surrounding family presence is just so important because, number one, it raises consciousness about the topic. I mean, if you're never thinking about it um, and suddenly you've been hit with it, you may not be ready to actually institute doing it. And so simply having a a survey, uh, conducting a survey, and finding out where does the majority of the staff lie in terms of their support for family presence. And we also set up, you know, some kind of qualitative, tell us what your concerns are and what you'd like to see if we did set up a policy. And so all of that can be folded in then to to the guidelines that you develop for a specific unit that's really unit-specific based on those interviews. The third step would be to create the formal family presence guidelines or policies or procedures, again, involving all those stakeholders who would be involved with it, identifying who the family presence facilitator would be on days and nights and weekends. And I think that that is a major facilitator for the success of a program, having having that recognized, having that indiv- those individuals trained and educated. Another key, I think, that we've, we've always added into our family presence guidelines is the step that before the family is offered family presence, that the facilitator assess the family member as, to determine whether they're a suitable candidate. 
clearly, if a family member is, you know, out of control, is raging, is just put their fists through the wall, is laying on the floor in a fetal position, is suspected of substance abuse, clearly that family member is not a candidate and should not be in in the room. Um, And so that assessment sometimes has to occur very quickly. But, but that would be the role of the family presence facilitator. And how do you get that person out of the room at the time of an emergency if they are that distraught, dysfunctional, disruptive? Hopefully they're not in the room yet, but there's, you know, there's many instances in, in which a family member will arrive by ambulance with the patient and be taken back to a trauma bay or in the situation where the parents or family member is already there when the patient begins to deteriorate. But that's the role of the facilitator. They are trained in in de-escalation, and they will present to the family that, you know, this is our focus right now needs to be on the family, uh, I'm sorry, on the patient, and that if you are to remain in the room, we need to get this behavior under control. And if not, we need to walk out and take a breath. The third key, I think, that we've always put in a family presence policy or procedure is that before the option is offered to the family member, that the facilitator requests agreement from the team about bringing the family in. And that is something that soothes healthcare providers to know that they have the option to say no if for whatever reason they think it's not appropriate. And again, that doesn't always happen because the family is there, but again, the providers involved know that if they're not comfortable with it, they can request that the family be escorted out. The family um, presence facilitator then prepares the family for what they're going to see and and what they're going to hear and what's going on and brings the family in the room and stays with them in the room and answers their questions and explains what's going on and stays with them after the event to clarify any misconceptions. And so it's important, that role is important. Now, is it essential? I I don't know if it's an essential role. I I suspect it is when getting started. And once a unit gets used to the culture, is it it necessary after that point? I think that's a question that remains to be investigated. But my recommendation would be yes, family presence facilitator is extremely important when getting off the ground. I think another step, though, in this model of evidence-based practice is um, to do something that may not always be done, and that would be to conduct a process and outcome evaluation to determine the feasibility and efficacy of the guidelines you've just set up. And so collect your data, see see how things are going, see what the outcomes are. Are you following the guidelines that you've set up? Are you screening families? Are you requesting uh, agreement from the providers in the room that the family come in? Does the facilitator stay with the family during the entire time? Do they prepare them? Do they explain what's going on? Do they try to get them in a position in the room where they can see the patient or touch the patient or speak to the patient. And so I think that step, particularly for those who are hesitant, simply involves saying, let us collect the data. Let's let's see how this is handing out. Let's see if there's any interruption in patient care. Let's see what our outcomes are. And of course, the fifth step would be to do that evaluation of the data collected. And then the, the last step would be to present it to the team and to decide 
are we going to adopt these new guidelines, revise them, refine them? Um, in one case, in an emergency department I, I was in, we had set up the guidelines pretty much based on what I just described, but we had some instances of suspected child abuse. And we decided in the end to refine the, um, the guidelines so that a contraindication being a suitable candidate um, for it, as a family member included being out of control and suspected substance abuse as well as suspected child abuse. And so we uh, refined that policy to reflect that. Interesting. Interesting. The information you have given us is really interesting. Do you have any final comments? Well, I do. Um, thank you for asking. I, I think most of the evidence I've been describing has come from emergency departments, and we have so much more research that needs to be done in critical care. And I just would encourage all the researchers out there to to consider that possibility. There's just so much more that needs to be done in the area of critical care, and what are the differences between critical care and the emergency department, and can the findings from the ED be generalized to critical care? And so that, you know, that's a huge question. The second last thing I'd like to say is that uh, we did a study a number of years ago that surveyed a 1,000 critical care units and emergency departments throughout the United States find out if they were doing family presence, and if so, did they have um, structured family presence guidelines. And the results of that study revealed that only 5% of critical care units and emergency departments had a formal structured policy procedure guideline in place. However, we also found out that over half of the respondents said that they either had done it already or would do it in the future. I happened to um, do a podcast with the Joint Commission some time ago, and before the podcast, I asked them, where does the Joint Commission stand on this? And they said they didn't have a stance on it, but they, they would have a stance from the perspective of, if you're doing it, you better have a formal policy and procedure on it to protect the patients, the families, and the staff. And so... The real issue is if you're doing it and uh, everybody's doing it haphazardly and there's no family presence facilitator and there's no screening process and there's no definite procedure, agreed upon procedure, agreed upon not only from the physician and, and nursing standpoint but from legal and risk management as well, then it's haphazard, um, it's dangerous, and um, everybody's doing it a different way. And so I think the message I'd like to send home is if, you know, if it's being done, then it needs to be an organized, sanctioned policy procedure that, that should be established within a critical care unit or an emergency department. Well, thank you very much, Kathy, for being here with us today. Well, thank you. There's still a lot of work to be done. but um... I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> You've raised a lot of food for thought. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for your interview. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. This podcast is made possible in conjunction with Project Dispatch, a Society of Critical Care Medicine program dedicated to disseminating patient-centered outcomes research to healthcare professionals. For more information, visit www.sccm.org/projectdispatch.
Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.